Alrighty, so uh, here's some here's some going back into history again. In 1990 or 1991, Steve Steve Martin acted in a movie called The Father of the Bride. Some of you remember that a long time ago. I think I watched it. it was far too many years ago. Um, if it were, if it had Stephen Martin in it, I probably did watch it because he's funny. At least I think he was. Um, so the whole the whole idea behind the movie was uh, his, Daddy's little girl is getting married, and Daddy doesn't want that to happen. He's just not going to let go of her, and he's got to come to terms with um, you know the 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 bride the groom to be and dealing with all of that apparently it's a remake of a 1950s movie of the same title um and so it obviously plugs into a very general um common feel amongst dads just saying for the young ladies here that uh you know you think you're going to get married and you think it's going to be easy just you know think about that but weddings are meant to be about that, right? They're meant to be about dad giving his daughter away. And I know it's a little bit old-fashioned to think of it like that. And I, uh, but, but the idea of dad walking his daughter down the aisle and handing her over to someone else. And yeah, I know feminism and women's lib and independent women of today's world. Um, but the image is still that image of dad handing over his daughter to someone else. And, and what had happened before that, of course, is that someone had come along and wooed the daughter and then gone and had a meeting with dad and uh, there'd been some stiff negotiation and discussion and an agreed upon labola was paid over. And at that point, he then goes and speaks to his girlfriend and pops the question and hands over the ring. That's how it's supposed to go, right? And, and, and as long as dad's agreed to all this, he goes off to get ready for the wedding and, and it's now dad's responsibility to continue to watch over his little girl's virtue until such time as he hands her over to the groom. And part of what that would involve is that if some other suitor comes knocking on the door, dad would have to say, um, no, sorry, too late, she's spoken for. And I've got the Labola deposit in my pocket, so it's too late to negotiate anything else. But how would it go if on the day of the wedding, Dad's walking bride down the aisle, and at the front of the church, the groom is waiting, big beaming smile on his face. And as she comes down the aisle, the bride is making eyes at the best man. That would be a bit dodgy. Or we're still making eyes at the minister. Now, I've never seen an ugly bride. I've done quite a few weddings. Um, it's amazing that, you know, you just don't get an ugly bride. And yet, I've never had to, uh, or, or, I've, never, I've never said this, tempted as, as I may have been from time to time, I've never ended the service by saying, you may now kiss the priest. That's just right. It doesn't happen, right? Uh, or you may now kiss the best man. That's not how it goes. How would it be for the bride to be walking down the aisle on the arm of her dad, and as she goes down one of the pews, she slips her phone number to some guy on the side and does a hey, call me? You know, just that wouldn't that wouldn't be right. 
Or if on the night before the wedding, perhaps there's a bit of a party together, there's a masquerade ball, and the bride, the bride-to-be, dances with some guy in a mask all night. And dad says to her, you know that's not your groom. And she's like, ah, oh, but he looks like my groom. And dad's like, he's shorter. And she's like, well, maybe he's just lost weight. I don't know. Um, and dad's like, but he's the wrong shape. He's, he, he, you know, doesn't have the same amount of hair. It's not, it's not the guy. And for the bride to say, well, it's close enough. There'd be a problem with that. That wouldn't be how it's supposed to go. And, and as weird as that picture may sound, that's kind of the picture that the Bible presents. Uh, in the Old Testament, the Bible presents the nation of Israel as God's bride and as God as the groom. And yet the story in the Old Testament tends to be the groom has been left at the altar. She's making eyes with someone else. She's passed her phone number around to others as she's walked down the aisle. And so the Old Testament presents God as the, as the cuckolded husband, as the jilted groom at the altar. And that imagery carries through to the New Testament. And in the New Testament, we find that the church, God's new creation, is called the Bride of Christ. And so our groom, Jesus, is getting ready for the bride. And I know that as a guy, it's a little weird to think of ourselves as a bride. We don't want to get dressed up in a dress. Um, so it's, it's, it's a metaphor, okay? Um, but but there, there is this kind of imagery in the Bible of Jesus, the groom, waiting for his bride. So we're going to read in 2 Corinthians this morning, we're going to read what Paul has to say about the bride and the groom and who the bride has been making eyes at. So if you want to turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 11, uh, and we're going to read from verse 1 this morning, where Paul says this, I hope that you will put up with a little bit of my foolishness, but you're already doing that. You're already putting up with foolishness. He says, I'm jealous for you. With a godly jealousy. I promised you to one husband, to Christ, so that I may present you as a pure virgin to him. But I'm afraid that just as Eve was deceived by the serpent's cunning, your minds may somehow have be led astray from your sincere and pure devotion to Jesus. For if someone comes to you and preaches a Jesus other than the Jesus we preached, or if you received a different spirit from the one you received, or a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with that easily enough. I don't think I am in the least inferior to those super apostles. I may not be a trained speaker, but I do have knowledge. We've made this perfectly clear to you in every way. Was it a sin for me to lower myself in order to elevate you by preaching the gospel of God to you free of charge? I robbed other churches by receiving support from them so as to serve you. And when I was with you and needed something, I was not a burden to anyone, for the brothers who came from Macedonia supplied what I needed. I have kept myself from being a burden to you in any way and will continue to do so. As surely as the truth of Christ is in me, nobody in the regions of Achaia will stop this boasting of mine. Why? Because I do not love you? God knows I do. And I will keep on doing what I am doing in order to cut, out, to, to cut the ground from under those who want an opportunity to be considered equal with us in the things they boast about. 
Such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, masquerading as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for Satan himself masquerades as an angel of light. It is not surprising then if his servants masquerade as servants of righteousness. Their end will be what their actions deserve. So I hope you've been keeping up with where we've been over the last couple of weeks in this letter to the Corinthians. What's happened is that there's been a group of, of self-appointed apostles in the city of Corinth who have sought to undermine everything that Paul has been about. They're undermining Paul's character, and in doing that, they've undermined the gospel that Paul has presented to this church. And Paul has been trying to rescue the Corinthians from these guys. And that's really what this passage is about. Paul is, uh, is, is, is announcing to this church, listen, there's a guy who's hiding behind the mask. I've wanted to present you to Jesus. He's the groom. He's the guy that you're waiting for. And I'm presenting you to him. And what's happened is that there's a guy in a mask that's come along, and he's pretending to be the groom. And you've run after him. You've made eyes at him. And Paul says, I don't want you to end up with a man in the mask. Because even the devil wears a mask. And I don't want you to be caught out. And he says a little bit about, about money and about how he hasn't taken money from anyone. He's preached the gospel for free. And, you know, sometimes there's no such thing as a free lunch. And, and if you don't pay for something, then you don't value it. And maybe that's been a problem with these guys. That Paul has offered this free of charge. He's not charged them a cent. He's been there for a year and a half and hasn't taken a penny from them. And the result is that they've said, oh, we better, the guys that are asking us for money, these super apostles, they're the ones we should follow. They've got a much better gospel presentation than Paul does. And Paul says, I need to rescue you from what's gone on, from these guys undermining the true gospel. And there are really two things I want to focus on this morning. Uh, devotion and deception. The devotion that this church meant to have to Jesus and the deception that they've entered into in being pulled away. Uh, devotion to Jesus and then a bit of a spot the difference. Can you tell the difference between true and false? Now, I, I love the phrase, the, the, the way Paul phrases it at the end of verse three, 3, when he says, uh, when he speaks about your pure and sincere devotion to Jesus. Paul said, that's what you had, and now I'm concerned that you might have been led, led astray from this. That you are no longer devoted to Jesus. That whatever devotion you might have to him has become impure and has become insincere. So let's unpack that a little bit. What are we devoted to? So often in Christian circles when we talk about devotions, we end up meaning um, our, our five or ten minutes in the morning when we read the Bible. And it's almost as though that's our devotion and it's sometimes that, that phrasing even captures a little bit of what we mean about devoted to Jesus. I'm devoted to Jesus for 10 minutes this morning. That's the devotion I will give to him. And then once that's done, I'm going to get on with the rest of my day. And, I, um, and we understand, obviously, that days are busy and you've got stuff to do and you can't spend your whole life in some kind of um, meditative state about Jesus. But it's almost as though sometimes within Christian circles... <coughs> We give our, our devotion to Jesus right at the beginning of the day, and then we're done. Now we can move on with the rest of our lives. We've got the religious thing out of the way, and we can move on with other stuff. 
But of course, that's, that's a pretty bleak, it's a pretty poor view of devotion. And then when we start to think about our lives, and you've got to start asking the question, well, what am I actually devoted to? And there are a number of things that we are devoted to, and there are things that we should be devoted to. There's some good things to be devoted to. So you, you should be devoted to your wife. You should be devoted to your children. You, 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 should, you should have some measure of devotion to your job. Um, you know, giving yourself and working hard for, to, to support the family. That's all good stuff. Um, some of us are devoted to hobbies. Um, then I, I, I found this online this week. Um, kind of the negative side of things that some of us are devoted to stress and it's not that you would say I'm devoted to stress but when you take a look at your life and how you create stress and seem to thrive and and seem to just love living by stress some of you are devoted to stress some of us are devoted to drama in relationships <laughs> um, and again it's not that anyone would ever say this is what I'm devoted to but if you look back over the way that your relationships have gone over the last little while, um, it may just be that actually that's precisely what you're devoted to because you're always surrounded by drama and chaos in your relationships. You might be uh, uh, devoted to food or to alcohol. You, you might be devoted to just sleepwalking through life, devoted to doing not very much. Devoted to self-flagellation, beating yourself up, I'm terrible, I'm awful, I'm just a terrible person. Devoted to greed, or, or devoted to a need to be on top and to come out on top. All you need to do is have a look at your life and to see what takes center stage in everything you do. To see what it is that you're devoted to. To be devoted to something means that your life orients around something. That everything you do is kind of viewed through this filter of devotion. To, to be devoted to something means a number of things. It means things like uh, you're going to have to sacrifice for the sake of the thing that you're devoted to. So if you're a musician and you're devoted to your music, then you'll sacrifice time in order to practice. You're going to give up current, present, wants in order to achieve the long-term goal of what you're devoted to so some people say well, we're devoted to losing weight but you spend your day eating chocolate chip cookies now yeah. and I just wonder well are you truly devoted to losing weight then or are you perhaps devoted to chocolate chip cookies or is it just that you you actually do want to be devoted to losing weight but you are distracted by the current um, you know needs and wants of the present moment and time When it comes to the bride, she should be devoted to her, to her fiancé, and that's as it should be. But if she has a bit of a fling on the side with her ex, then you would question her devotion. So a couple of quotes here. Here's from a guy called David Wilkerson. David says, devotion to Jesus requires self-sacrifice, what I've just said. It requires surrender. It requires single-mindedness. Devotion to Jesus means trusting Him alone to meet every need of body, soul, and spirit. The bride of Christ, he says, will be comprised of those who have given up trying to find help 
comfort and satisfaction from anything on this earth. They have learned to depend wholly on the one that they love in order to fully satisfy their every hunger and thirst. And then he says this, he asks this question, he says, do you have this kind of walk with Jesus? I urge you to keep your eyes focused on the bridegroom. Expect his return at any, any moment and do not look to anything or anyone else to fulfill you. And then this from, from Oswald Chalmers. Oswald wrote a, a, he's like a hundred years ago, he wrote a daily devotional called uh, My Utmost for His Highest. And here's one of the, from one of those. He says, discipleship means personal, passionate devotion to a person, our Lord Jesus Christ. There's a vast difference between devotion to a person and devotion to a, uh, uh, to a principle or a cause. Our Lord never proclaimed a cause. He proclaimed a personal devotion to himself. To be a disciple is to be a, uh, <clears throat> is to be a devoted bondservant motivated by love for the Lord Jesus Christ. Many of us who call ourselves Christians are not truly devoted to Jesus. No one on earth has this passionate love for Jesus unless the Holy Spirit has given it to him. We may admire respect and revere him but we cannot love him on our own the only one who truly loves the lord jesus is the holy spirit and it's he who has poured into our hearts the love of god and whenever the holy spirit sees an opportunity <clears throat> to glorify jesus through you he will take your entire being and set you ablaze with a glowing devotion to jesus so do you get that? He's, he's saying that our devotion to Jesus is a reflection of our love for him. And we can't love him as we are without the power of the Holy Spirit working in and through us. So keep those thoughts in mind. We'll come back to them in a moment. But let's just go down a little side path for a moment. What, 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 what happens if the bride is devoted to the groom for dodgy reasons? See, you know how this works, right? I mean, you married him for his money, right? The wives that are here today, you might married him for his money. Absolutely. You married him for his status. You married him for where he was going. You married him for his title. You married him for what he could offer you in society. Um, right? You married him for his looks. <laughs> You'd have to say that some of those things would, would display an insincere devotion, right? You'd call that person a gold digger. You're not marrying him for who he is, but you're marrying him for what he can give you. Do you think it's possible to be devoted to Jesus for similar insincere motives? You'd have to say yes, of course. I think there's a lot of people who come to Jesus and instead of loving him for who he is love him for what he can give me so i'll love jesus i'll follow jesus i'll be devoted to jesus as long as he fill in the blank right as long as he sorts out my husband fixes my kids gets me a job as long as jesus does the following things as long as he makes me happy and so some people, I think, I think all of us have got to check our hearts because I think we can. We can be devoted to Jesus for the wrong reasons. 
It's an insincere devotion. Instead of being devoted to Him and loving Him for who He is, we love Him for what He can give us. It's insincere. How about loving Him for impure motives? So that's the two words that Paul uses, sincere and pure. How about loving Him with impure motives? Impure just means to be mixed. So if you, if you have a bag of pure heroin, as you do, right? And you mix in with it a little bit of cake flour and sugar and some bath salts. You've now turned your heroin into something impure. Now, I'm not suggesting that Jesus is like heroin, okay? I'm not saying that. Um, but, but it's when we mix other things in that what was pure becomes impure. Is it possible for the bride to have impure motives in marrying her husband? What will she mix into this marriage? A devotion to the husband along with a side order of the ex? What do we mix in with our devotion to Jesus? Are we devoted to him, but there's a side uh, connection to this world and the worldliness of what goes on around us? Paul calls us to a pure and sincere devotion to Jesus. And Oswald, as I read, just said, and, and David Wilkerson as well, both, both said that that devotion springs from, comes from, a deep love for Him. We will be devoted to Him when we love Him for who He is. And the Apostle John says this, we love Him because He loved us. So, let's follow the logic back. How do we know that He loved us? If we can figure out that He loves us, then we will be able to love Him in return. So, how do we know that God loves us. And there's all sorts of reasons that we might have for saying, yes, this is how I know God loves us. I know God loves me because today is a wonderful day. The sun is shining. It's a birthday. Everyone's happy. I'm happy. And in my happy state, I just know that God loves me, which is great. But what do we do when tomorrow it's raining and I'm not happy anymore? Does God still love me then? Do I still know that he loves me? Or it may be that you've just been to you know, you can think back six months ago to when you were at church and were able to sing. And we sang those beautiful songs. And, and in, in the emotion of the moment, you just shed tears as you were aware of the embrace of, of the love of God. And those are wonderful moments to pursue. And that's how I know that God loves me. <coughs> but what happens when another week goes by and we're singing the same songs and you don't feel that? And the person next to you does. But you don't. So, so now is your love of God questioned again? Or is his love for you questioned? Perhaps you can say, I know he loves me because of the way that I'm loved by the Christian community. Which is great, again, until someone in the Christian community betrays you. Then, how do you feel about the love of God? So Tim Chester says this, How do we know God loves us? Because he has given us his son. Because Jesus died for us on the cross. The cross is the great, fixed, immovable declaration of God's love. John says this is how we know that he loved us. He gave his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is how we know that God loves us. Not by our feelings and events of life. We know he loves us by this one um, immovable fixed point in time it's why we share communion once a month 
reminder of the death of Jesus. A sincere and pure devotion to Jesus springs from that, when we see his devotion to us. That while we were still sinners, before we were all dressed up in a nice white dress and loaded up with makeup, while we were still in rags, in the gutter, at that point he loved us. At that moment he displayed his love for us. This devotion to us, when we meditate on it, stirs our love and devotion for him. Not because of what we can get from him. Not mixed up with other stuff, but love for his own sake. Because he is beautiful, because he is glorious, because he is delightful. Do you love him? Is your love for him pure and sincere? Is there a pure and sincere devotion to Jesus this morning? But then Paul says there's been a problem in Corinth. There's been this masquerade ball. Some guy in a mask has come along and deceived you. So now we've gone from the devotion to Jesus to these guys have been deceived. And now we need to spot the difference between the real Jesus and this different Jesus. The real spirit and a different spirit. The real gospel and this fake gospel. Because Paul says this is what's happened. Someone's come along and taken you, the bride, and presented you to a different groom. This isn't who you've been promised to. You've been presented to the servants of the devil. Your devotion to Jesus has been redirected. And we need to fix that. In reading First and Second Corinthians, there's a couple of themes that run through. And one of the themes that just keeps coming up again and again and again, that Paul just keeps on going on and on about, is, is this theme of weakness and, and foolishness. And, um, and sacrifice, and, and frailty, and suffering. That, that's a theme that keeps going through these pages. And it seems to me that when you read a little bit about the super apostles, these guys who, who, who set themselves up in Corinth, they were, they were far more excited to speak about victory, and success, and power. And so you have these two uh, kind of... Um, presentations of the gospel clashing. Paul speaking about sacrifice and humility and surrender and these false apostles declaring power and victory and, uh, and strength. And it's not to say that as Christians we never experience victory. We do, of course we do. But the message from these apostles seems to have been along the lines of, you're a child of the king, so live as a prince, live it up, be all you can be, grab all you can grab. Make sure you, you know, you get everything that's owing to you. Demand it from God because he's got to give it. And that just doesn't play out in the gospel that Paul presents. So Paul speaks about three different things, right? A different gospel, a different spirit, a different Jesus. Let's talk about them very quickly. Paul has preached a gospel of the cross. That's what he says right at the beginning. I came to you preaching Christ and him crucified. It's a gospel of grace that starts with the recognition of our deep need and God's great grace. So the gospel message is a message of the cross. It's a message of the sacrifice of Jesus. It's a message of our own self-sacrifice. It's a message of humility before God. 
And if you go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 2, you read about how Paul says, are speaking about the, the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. And yet God is pleased through this foolishness to save many. But these guys are preaching a gospel of power and victory and self-fulfillment and self-actualization. They're preaching a gospel of don't be hard on yourself. Don't, you don't need to start with this whole thing, you're a poor, miserable sinner. No, you're not. You're a good person and God quite likes you. They would present a gospel of you're the hero. You're the center of the story. And so instead of a gospel of salvation by grace through faith, they're presenting a gospel of hard work and effort and mystical experiences. A gospel that isn't really so much about bringing us to God, but a gospel about making you all that you can be. And it's not too different from the, the gospel message that we tend to hear today. You know, th there are two ways that you can read the Bible. You can either read the Bible with yourself at the center of every story, and read it as you are the hero, or you can read the Bible with Jesus at the center of the story, with Jesus as the hero of every event. So here's, here's how that goes. Um, it's, it's an example that I've used before a couple of times, just, it just it works so well, right? So you, you can read the story of David and Goliath with yourself at the center of the story. And with yourself at the center of the story, the story goes that you're David, and you just need a little bit of faith and you can overcome your giants. And that's the story that is so often presented. That's the, that's the good news, apparently, that you, with faith, can overcome your giants. But when we put Jesus at the center of the story, when we, when we put him as the hero, we begin to see that actually, you're not David. You're just not David. What you are is the Israelite who is hiding in the caves. You're the Israelites who are hiding away from the Philistines. You're the Israelites who are running away from the giant, and you need, you need a savior. You need God's king to rescue you. And the story then becomes one of, our God has delivered us from the giants that we could not defeat. And suddenly, it's no longer you the center of the story, and you the hero, but Jesus the center of the story, and Jesus the hero. You're not Moses interceding with God on behalf of the lost. You're the Israelites dancing around the golden calf. You need a Moses to intercede on your behalf who will sacrifice himself for you. And so when we begin to read the Bible with Jesus at the center, we see that he's the hero and not us. And that changes how we view the gospel. When you put yourself at the center, well, I can save myself. I can just work hard, be a good person, try hard, exercise a bit of faith, and God will rescue me. But that's not the gospel. Our modern gospel puts us at the center about what I can accomplish, about me being all I can be, and we'll mix a little bit of morality into that. Be good, be strong, be brave, be faithful. But the gospel that Paul preached was a gospel of um, Christ is all. That we are more deeply flawed than we ever thought, and yet more deeply loved than we could ever imagine. Not only are they presenting a different gospel, they're presenting a different spirit. 
they, they're again preaching, I think, a, a spirit of power. This, the Holy Spirit has come to give you power uh, and to do great deeds. And that certainly does capture some of what the Holy Spirit does. But it's not all that the Spirit does. The Spirit of God also confronts us. He confronts our sin. He points us to Jesus and the cross. He produces fruit in keeping with righteousness. But it seems that these guys were, pro were proclaiming a spirit that did none of those things. Because they weren't concerned with conviction and holiness. They weren't concerned with repentance and righteousness. They would say the spirit has been given so that you can have an ecstatic ex encounter a mystical experience and that you could feel good he's come to make you happy he's come to give you power and it's fake it's the spirit has come to do so much more than that perhaps the most damning of all is their presentation of jesus a different jesus again they're presenting the bride to the groom but the groom that they're presenting him to is a watered down jesus they're all eager to tell you about jesus the jesus of miracles and power but they would downplay Jesus in his suffering and his death. Today, we're presented with a whole host of different Jesuses. We've got Jesus the therapist, who gently massages your conscience and says it's okay. We've got Jesus the socialist, who's eager to start up the revolution. We've got Jesus the enabler, who will give me what I, what I want. And for many people, we treat him as Jesus, the app that I can just tap whenever I need him to come along and give me what I need, what I demand. Jesus, the extra add-on accessory. And again, it's not who Paul is presenting the bride to. Paul says, we preach Christ and him crucified. Remember, I, I, I quoted David Wilkerson earlier saying that we need to keep our eyes focused on the bridegroom. And that's exactly what I want to say to us today. To keep your eyes on Jesus, to open your eyes and see him and to see him for who he is, to, to see him in his glory, to see him revealed in majesty, to see him at the cross, to see him raised and seated at the right hand of the Father in heaven, to see him dressed and ready to come and claim his bride, to see him in humility and in love. And so the hoax has to be unmasked. The deceiver needs to be revealed. The mask needs to be removed so that you can see the one that you're giving yourself to. And Paul says, I want to present you to Jesus, the groom. But your so-called friends are presenting you to an inferior suitor. And the real issue comes down to this. If you are betrothed and married to Jesus, you will be loved and welcomed and honored and brought in and made part of a family. But if you are deceived and you give yourself to the other, you will be enslaved and end up in an, in a, an abusive marriage. Don't be deceived this morning, but be devoted to the groom. Don't be deceived by what is fake, no matter how good it sounds. Be devoted to the groom in purity and sincerity. I want to finish this morning just by reading the words of a hymn. It's a hymn that I've never heard before. I've never sung it, so I'm not going to sing it to you because I don't know how the tune goes. It was written by a Baptist guy called John Fawcett. And John Fawcett was the pastor of a Baptist church in Yorkshire in the 1800s. 
and it was a tiny little church that barely supported him. He was offered a bigger church in London. He was about to move and at the last moment decided to stay where he was and wrote a hymn that some of you will recognize, Blessed Be the Tie That Binds. And that hymn was about, I'm tied to this church and I just can't let it go. That's not this hymn, but that's that guy. So listen to the words of this hymn. I, I, I think they are, I don't know, touching. I think they, they apply exactly to where we are this morning. Jesus, the heavenly bridegroom, gave his life, my wretched soul, to save. Resolved to make his mercy known, he kindly claims me for his own. Rebellious I against him strove, till melted and constrained by love. With sin and self I freely part, the heavenly bridegroom wins my heart my guilt my wretchedness he knows yet takes and owns me for his spouse my debts he pays and sets me free and makes his riches owe to me my filthy rags are laid aside he clothes me as becomes a bride himself bestows my wedding dress the robe of perfect righteousness Lost in astonishment I see, Jesus, thy boundless love for me. With angels I thy grace adore, and long to love and praise thee more. Since thou wilt take me for thy bride, O keep me, Saviour, near thy side. I fain would give thee all my heart, nor ever from my Lord depart. Let's pray together. And so, Lord Jesus, we would thank you this morning that you have given us um, your spirit and that you have called us your bride and that we await the coming of the bridegroom. Lord, may you find in us a sincere and pure devotion to you. May our eyes not stray to a different Jesus. May we not be caught up in a different gospel. May our eyes be fixed firmly on you. And as we consider your love for us, may our love for you increase more and more. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, everyone. We're going to enjoy some cupcakes now. Um, you can just imagine what they taste like Maybe online. 50 Rand each. 50 Rand each. What a bargain. <laughs>